you would, please take your copy of God's word and turn to Isaiah chapter 51. Some of these words may sound familiar. That is certainly not a bad thing. When Bruce leads us in prayer, he often, usually, picks whatever passage we're looking at that week. And so you'll notice plenty of allusions, if not quotes, as we read through this uh, together. Isaiah chapter 51, if you don't have a Bible, it is printed on the inside page of the bulletin. You can find it a couple other places as well. Without further ado, hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me. And I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. And for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, <clears throat> Excuse me, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? 
Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken your hand from your hand, the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word this morning. Let's pray. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be still, our God, our helper, our deliverer. Be all that we need you to be, for we cannot deliver ourselves. Our arm cannot lift us up and snatch us up out of the trouble that we have gotten ourselves into or the trouble that others have placed upon us. Oh, God, be with us. Speak to us, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. How can I trust God when so much is going wrong? So much in the world. Politics is a mess. Everyone hates each other. No one trusts each other. And the cause of all of our problems is always the other guy. The world of sports is a mess. Can't turn on the TV without the latest political agenda or the latest drug with 18,000 side effects being crammed down my throat. And then the biggest stars in the world of sports are getting suspended for PEDs or boasting of their infidelity or something else. Or in the case of one retired athlete scamming the welfare system to build a volleyball facility for his college age daughter. Life's a mess, but you, preacher, you want me to trust God. You want me to believe in and obey a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Really? How can I do that when there's so much mess around me? Now, before I answer, let me clarify That is exactly what God wants us to do. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. God wants you to trust him in the darkness of life, the darkness of uncertainty, the darkness of your personal circumstances, the darkness of this world's fallenness of the latest nightly news and headlines, the darkness even of trusted organizations and leaders who let us down. Because you know, one of Jesus's 12 disciples once resorted to this kind of whataboutism as well. Did you know that? Jesus told Peter, you're gonna die as a martyr. Now that was sobering and encouraging. Sobering because, you know, martyrdom on a cross is not fun, but encouraging. Because Peter had failed repeatedly, the disciple who is most like us, someone once said, yet he would make it to the end. And even with that encouragement, you will be faithful to the end. Peter had second thoughts. 
Peter needed to stick his foot in his mouth one more time. So John 21, 20, Peter sees John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Rumor was that John would live until Jesus came back. Not true, but it created jealousy in Peter's heart. John's fate would not be as bad as Peter's, supposedly. And so John 21, 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. That's Jesus. Doesn't matter what's happening to him. You follow me. You must follow me. All that stuff I mentioned at the beginning, all the other gripes we might have about the world, the church, everything else, Jesus might say, what is that to you? You must follow me. All the darkness crashing down around Israel 2,700 years ago, what is that to you? You must follow me. We have four points today, four reasons that Israel can trust her Savior and follow his paths despite the darkness around them. Pray for my voice. It's a little weird this morning. Point number one, the righteousness that comforts. The righteousness that comforts. Verses one through eight. Who was it that was pursuing righteousness? Verse one. Well, they were obviously God's people seeking the Lord. Probably the Israelites, those who had been hewn from a small rock, originated from Abraham and Sarah, he was but one when I called him, God says in verse 2. It's the shades of Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. I didn't choose you, Israel, because you were the biggest and the best. You were small, and I multiplied you and blessed you. You know, Elijah once thought that he was the only faithful one left until God reassured him that there were others. And you, you're your state of your church, your spiritual life, something else. You might think it's small, but God can grow it. So those pursuing righteousness, they're God's people, God's weary people maybe, who feel outnumbered, who feel overlooked. And based on verses 3 and 11, one commentator believes that the righteousness they wanted, that they were pursuing, was a trip back to Zion, God's holy city. You see, this was an annual religious rite for God's people, one that they would have been deprived of in exile. Think about exile. They couldn't go to church even if they wanted to. No, we're not talking about COVID once again, but I do wonder if the exiles, they would have paid handsomely for a live stream, no matter the video or audio quality. Sorry, just thinking out loud. Again, these are people who long for all things to be made right. For them to worship in the tabernacle, the temple, with with God's people and God's word once again. It's a holy desire. And how does God satisfy that desire? By promising its fulfillment. By pointing to his past, his future, and his present faithfulness. We've already seen some of that past faithfulness talking about Abraham, verses 1 and 2. But he also says in verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Paradise lost. That was John Milton's summation of life after Eden. But Eden is making a comeback, God says here. 
And by the way, was this written before or after the exile? It can be confusing. I think it was written before Israel's exile, but it was partly intended for those who would live through the exile so that they might cherish the ancient words ever true that would change their perspective on the exile. Those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness, they would be comforted. They would be satisfied. They would not be disappointed. And of course, that propels us to the future. In verses four through six, when God would remain faithful, God's law or his Torah, his teaching and instruction would go out. His justice would be a light to the nations, the peoples. Righteousness would come near. Salvation would go out. Verse five says the coastlands, the coastlands, they hope for me. For my arm, they wait. The enemies of God who are a Pressing his people, as Isaiah writes this, they'll pass away. But God's salvation will never pass away. Verses 4 through 6 says, those who want righteousness for the world to be made right, they will get righteousness. That's a promise not just for Israel, but for all who long for such righteousness. All those who trust God's Savior to make it right in his time. He's been faithful. He's been righteous in the past. He'll be faithful in the future. And so how does that inform my right now? Look at verses 7 and 8. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will <clears throat> eat them up like a garment, and the world will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever. And my salvation to all generations. Oh yes, other men will reproach or revile you. <clears throat> they may make fun of you. But they don't know what they're missing. They don't realize what the end will be like. All will be made right. And if you aren't right, then that's bad news for you. But if you know righteousness, if you pursue it, if you long for it, for God's salvation, then you will one day as we sing, feast in the house of Zion. God will comfort his people. There will be joy. There will be gladness. There will be thanksgiving. It will all come near. It will come near. You see, God wants us to realize these promises are so true, so close that you can almost taste them. In fact, if you are his child, then he says that the Holy Spirit is your, your down payment, your appetizer, your hors d'oeuvre of the kingdom of God. Can you trust this God in the darkness? Yes. Because he's given you reasons to trust in the past. He's given you promises for the future. And all of that should comfort and reassure you right now of the hope we have. Of the full future inheritance that awaits us. That's the righteousness that comforts. And we also see, secondly, the redemption that cries out. The redemption that cries out. You see it in verses 9 through 11. The, the tone in the speaker change right here. This section is not in quotes. Now Israel is speaking to her Savior. Verse 9. <clears throat> awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Wake up, God. Wake up. We're 
hurting, show your strength, defeat the enemy as you did before when you cut Rahab in pieces. Now, briefly, this is not a Rahab from the book of Joshua. This is a weird nickname I don't fully understand for Egypt. You see the same thing in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7. Egypt is the one whom God figuratively cut in pieces. The context makes it clear that they're referring to God's victory in the past over Egypt. What I would mean, verse 10, was it not you who dried up the sea? The waters of the great deep who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. The redeemed are remembering their story of redemption. Oh, and what a story. When Israel was hemmed in, no way out, pushed up against the edge of the Red Sea with a mighty army bearing down on them, God made a way. God cleared a path. For the redeemed to pass through and at just the right time. When the last Israelite was safely through, God drowned the Egyptians who were pursuing them. They remember this story. And it seems to, to give them confidence to quote Isaiah 35 verse 10. Flip back there if you can. Isaiah chapter 35 verse 10 and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It, it seems they remember that and they quote it in verse 11 of Isaiah 51. How well do they remember it? How well do they remember it as they think about Egypt? They think about this verse in chapter 35 when they were flirting with the idea that Egypt might be a better savior than their God. How well do they recall it? Verse 11 of chapter 51, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Looks word for word to me. How about you? But I want to back up because who is crying out like this? Who's doing it? It's the redeemed of the Lord. It's the one who have just heard the promises of God. Oh, oh we might think that, that godly people don't do this. They don't cry out like this. We might think that godly people don't whine. But my friends, this is not whining. This is lamenting. Do you know the most common genre of song? It's the lament. Woe is me. Life is not what I want it to be. To be, deliver me, O Lord. That's the most common form of psalm. What does that tell us? That it is not ungodly to cry out. Let's do it without the double negative. It is godly to cry out to God when life gets hard. In fact, those who know God's redemption, they often cry out more when life gets tough. Because if you know God's righteousness, then you know how life should be. How it was meant to be before the fall. You know that you were made for more than this. Only a redeemed heart has tasted the down payment of our full inheritance. So the more we realize the rede our redemption, the more we will cry out when life turns bitter. You might say, what if I'm not a Christian, Pastor Matt? Great question. There's still good news here for you as well. 
Because the main difference between you and somebody who already is a Christian is this. You, you both know, hopefully, that you're flawed. You both seek a solution, hopefully. But those who are in Christ know that their Savior sought them. We who know the joy of redemption know that we haven't done anything to find ourselves, to find Christ. No, he found us. We were the lost sheep. He found us. And if you don't yet know Christ, you simply need to say, I want to be found. I want to be found. I want to be found in Christ, not having any rightness of my own. I want to know what verse 11 is talking about. I want to taste and see what this is like. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I want to know that joy. I hope you do. The more we realize our redemption, the more we will cry out when life turns bitter. The more you know your Redeemer, the more you want Him to draw near. That's the redemption that cries out. Next, we see, thirdly, the remembrance that casts out fear. The remembrance that casts out fear, verses 12 to 16. Okay, remember verse 9, Israel asked God to wake up. Is that good or bad? Well, the assumption that God was asleep, maybe not so good, right? <clears throat> but the instinct to cry out to God when trouble comes to to boldly pray foolishly, or however Bruce put it so eloquently a few moments ago. The instinct to cry out to God when trouble comes, that was good. And how does God answer? Verse 12, he says, I, I am he who comforts you. We won't read all these verses. We already read them once. But God might as well say in verses 12 to 16, have you forgotten who I am? I am God Almighty. I do not sleep. I am always ready. How dare you be afraid when I am ready to help and comfort you? Don't you know who I am? I'm the creator, he says in verse 13. Don't you remember the, the Red Sea thing that you just mentioned? I am still that God, he seems to say in verse 15. Don't you remember my covenant to you? Don't you remember my name? About that name, verse 15, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Twice in this verse, a special name is used. Briefly at the end, Lord of hosts, that is Lord of the angel armies. He is the true commander in chief of the mightiest army ever. But twice in that phrase and one other time and then other times throughout the passage, there's this word, Lord, but it's in small caps. You notice that? It's all capital letters, but some of them are smaller, small caps, Lord. It stands for Jehovah or Yahweh. There's debate about how to pronounce it in Hebrew. The name that means I am who I am, or I will be who what I will be. I will be all that my weary people need me to be in the house of slavery in Egypt, in the house of exile, or wherever. This is the name that was revealed at the burning bush. Further explained when Moses hid in the cleft of the rock. This is the God who condescended to man's level, who came down 
that we might understand him. The God who made a covenant with us. Why does God make his promises in the form of a, a covenant, a guarantee? Did God have to do that? I mean, who could make him do that? Who can boss him around? No, God made a covenant with his people because of his kindness, because of his goodness, because of his mercy. He knows that we are frail. He knows that our faith is like shifting sand. He knows that we need frequent reminders not because his word is flawed, but because our faith is weak. And sometimes God gives signs and seals of those covenant promises, which are so tangible that we can't miss them. Sometimes he gives us representations of the Lord's body and blood to feed our weak faith. The gospel for our senses. We need reminders and God gives them. We need to know that we are God's people, as verse 16 says, even if we've been unfaithful, unfaithful like Gomer, Hosea's wife, who spent the night in every house in town, seemingly. See, when you remember that God is God, the mighty, overpowering Lord of hosts, the magnanimous covenant-making God, the creator who controls all the creation, who can move heaven and earth to help you if need be. When you remember that God is God and that this God loves you, even though he didn't have to, even though we are unworthy, when you remember that this God is God and that this God loves you, then don't your problems and your fears just begin to look a little bit smaller? 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. My friends, do whatever you have to do to remember God's love for you. Write it on the bathroom mirror, on the home screen of your cell phone. Memorize scripture at stoplights. One of our members did that long before we ever started doing sword fighters. I was impressed. I've never forgotten it. Do whatever you have to do to remember God's love for you. I mean, guys, try it for a week. And if you don't have less fear and more joy, then I'll buy you a cup of coffee. You can tell me why it didn't work and what I don't know. Do whatever you have to do to remember God's love for you. Because that's the remembrance that casts out fear. That's the remembrance that casts out fear. What a joy it is. <clears throat> Lastly, we also see the reversal that consoles. The reversal that consoles in verses 17 to 23. Drunkenness and wine are often used as symbols for God's wrath. Have you, have you ever heard the expression, he can't handle his liquor? Well, no one can handle God's judgment. Not full force, not undiluted. With that, look at verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Israel as a whole was a sinful nation. Oh yes, the remnant remained, the faithful remained, but as a, as a whole, they were rebels. Sexual immorality, idolatry, robbing the, for, the, the, excuse me, robbing the poor, fattening the rich. You see every kind of sin seemingly in Isaiah. 
And before we get too haughty and superior, just remember the seed of every known sin lies within our hearts. Google says a lot of famous Presbyterian and Reformed guys said that. Israel was bad, so God judged them. Invasion, exile, foreign nations, physical judgments for spiritual sins. But even in the midst of her drunken stupor, God calls her to wake up. He is not done with her yet. She has no one to help or guide her. Verse 18 says, verse 19, famine and sword have come. Who will comfort her? Can anyone do it? In these circumstances, verse 20, the next generation is hopeless, but there's a therefore in the next verse. Verse 21, therefore hear this. You who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And why? Why did God do this? Is it because they promised to try harder? Is it because they promised to clean themselves up? No, God has to tell them to wake up. To combine this with an image from Ezekiel, God is telling dry, drunken bones to put on flesh and live. He's calling dead men to be reborn. Just like many years later when Jesus would say, Lazarus, come out. Someone once said, it's a good thing Jesus said Lazarus' name or all the dead would have come out of their graves. And not only is God calling, not only is he calling off the firing squad in Isaiah 51 here for the sake of his unworthy people. Not only that, verse 23, and I will put it, the cup of wrath, he's taking it from them. And he says in verse 23, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. You've made their back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. God says one day, no evil men will ever be able to hurt his people. Now, there are all kinds of temporal fulfillments of this. Talked about some in the past. This one is vague, nonspecific. Because one historical example is less than the historical principle. One day every knee will bow. One day God will right every wrong. One day God will punish the wrongdoers, those who never turn to him. And to the extent that God's people have ever received his cup of wrath, back then or now, it was temporary and it was diluted. Back in Isaiah 27, it says this, 27 verse 7. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? In other words, has God struck Israel, his people, as bad as he struck her oppressors? Has Israel had it as bad as her oppressors? When we originally looked at this passage, I mentioned this from one author. God has always, quote, acted toward his people with restraint, not according to their Deservings, deserving still a funny word, but it gets the point across, reminds me of Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, 
nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. What is the most important reversal? Why does it comfort us? Why does it console us? Is it the way that God took his wrath from his people and transferred it to his enemies in Isaiah 51? Not quite. You see, that's not even the best reversal or replacement or substitute that you find in Isaiah. What do I mean? Well, we're a couple weeks away, but it's a good time for a teaser. Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray each everyone has turned to his own way and the Lord is laid on him the iniquity of us all isn't that a wonderful reversal regardless of what happens to anyone else our sin deserves punishment, but God reverses course and he puts our sin upon another. And not only that, Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Many will be made righteous. Sinners will be made righteous instead of being punished for their sin. Who cares what happens to others? If that's what happens to you. If you receive mercy. Favor. Blessing that you don't deserve. Who cares what happens to others? If this is what happens to you. How can you trust God in the darkness? Because on the other side of darkness. There is so much blessing. And how can you trust God. When there's so much wrong in the world because there's so much that's right so much that's good so many blessings that we don't deserve and they can all be found by trusting in the one who was pierced for our transgressions who was crushed for our iniquities his chastisement brings us peace his wounds bring us healing he is good he is God he is our savior and we can trust him. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good and all that you do is good. Teach us your decrees. Teach us, instruct us, guide us by the hand as your people. Give us all the reminders and refreshments we need of your mercy to us. Of how the one who was at your right hand, came to this earth and laid down all that he had, that he might bring us to God. Remind us of that. We pray it in Christ's great name. Amen.